news today. Uh, at this point, I'd like to introduce Wendell Wallach, who's been a very important advisor to our group from the beginning. Wendell has had a very illustrious career in high technology, uh, having graduated from uh, Harvard Divinity School, very logical transition there. And uh, right now, he sort of combined the two into uh, coordinating the technology and ethics uh, working group of the uh, Yale Bioethics Center. So, um, Wendell, if you'll step forward. Thanks, James. In this um, collective journey, we all seem to be engaged in and trying to integrate our beliefs, our spiritual intuitions with the latest scientific research. I've always been particularly appreciative of the commentaries from the philosophers who are helping us understand at least what the latest fMRI picture or the latest, latest commentary about the determinism of some neural mechanism really is saying versus what it is presumed to be saying. And in that, particularly thankful that we have Ron Crisley tonight. Ron is a reader in the philosophy department of the excuse me, he's a reader in philosophy in the Department of Informatics at the University of Sussex in the UK. And he's also director of the Center for Research in Cognitive Science. He really has very far-ranging interests, including the philosophy of mind, embodied cognition, AI, and machine consciousness. Um, he's been particularly interested recently in non-conceptual context, which for those of you who don't know that phrase, it refers to the aspects of mind that aren't easily captured in linguistic categories. So that would include um, perception, the experience of animals, or the experience of infants. And he goes into other areas, including the philosophy of computation, logic, the philosophy of language. So a rather broad interdisciplinary approach to both philosophy and to cognitive science. He's particularly unusual in that very few philosophers have an actual background in cognitive science and cognitive research, and for Ron, it's specifically with artificial intelligence. He has hands-on experience designing AI systems uh, for NASA, for various companies in Silicon Valley, at, at the Xerox Park, and at Stanford University, where he graduated uh, with a BS in science. I first encountered Ron through some articles that he co-authored with Aaron Sloman. Some of you may know Aaron at the University of Birmingham. And he and Ron together developed a framework that's known as the COG-AF uh, framework. It's a very, very broad conceptual framework for dealing with issues both in understanding human cognition and human affect, but also a developmental platform for computer scientists to think through the various concerns that need to come into play as they consider developing systems with higher order cognition. In addition to the papers with Aaron, um, Ron wrote a classic paper together with um, Conan and Barna, and that's on comparing the performance of neural networks on pattern recognition, a uh, paper that gets cited very often. He also edited four volumes on artificial intelligence, critical concepts, and is co-editing a book on art, body, and, oh, no and, right? Art, body, embodiment. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, Ron's also been writing a, a book that's called Synthetic Experience in its present incarnation, and that's for the prospects for a scientific account of consciousness through conceptual change brought about by designing and interacting with artificial agents and art. Is that how the art comes in? So, again, thankful to have Ron here. As I mentioned, he has a BS from Stanford University. He was a Fulbright Scholar and worked for a year at Helsinki University of Technology under the Fulbright Scholarship. And he has his doctorate from New College in Oxford. So thank you, Ron.
thanks, Wendell, for that kind introduction. And uh, thanks to uh, James and uh, the Divinity School, um, and, and also to um, Willis Jenkins and Dennis Turner, the co-directors of the Initiative in Religion, Science, and Technology, and all the co-sponsors that uh, made my visit possible. I'm very grateful. Um, I've been made to feel very welcome here. Uh, but I must say that uh, that actually wasn't necessarily a difficult task because um, uh, five members of my immediate family uh, are or were ordained clergy, and in particular, my mother and father were both uh, ordained clergy, and they decided to go to seminary at the same time. And uh, that, when I was a child, when uh, my sisters and I were children, and um, for a family that was being supported by the GI Bill, that meant that when they had night classes at, uh, at the theological school, um, you know, no, childcare was out of the question. So that meant we had classes at the theological school as well. So um, that meant my sisters and I spent a lot of our childhood um, at the coffee shop, library, and classrooms of uh, theological school here in America. So. Um, uh, it's not exactly an alien environment here, although it's a very different uh, divinity school here, I'm sure, than the one I'm, I'm familiar with. But uh, still, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here, and um, I've been made to feel um, very much at home. Is that, uh, is that a blasphemous notion on, say, a Judeo-Christian, uh, tr within the Judeo-Christian tradition, or might we see some way of seeing it as very consonant with that? Active journey that's cited very often. And I were children, and um, inquiries into theodicy, into, for childcare was out of the question, so that meant we had classes at the theological school as well. So um, that meant my sisters and I spent a lot of our childhood um, at the coffee shop, library, and classrooms of uh, theological school here in America. So um, uh, it's not exactly an alien environment here, although it's a very different uh, divinity school here, I'm sure, than the one I'm, I'm familiar with. But uh, still, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here, and um, I've been made to feel um, very much at home. So first a tease, something that I might not be able to get to today, but I'll just mention some questions that uh, come up when considering uh, the general issue of artificial intelligence and spirituality. Uh, one topic I've been looking at is, is the very notion of creating a mind. Is that, uh, is that a blasphemous notion on, say, a Judeo-Christian, uh, tr within the Judeo-Christian tradition? Or might we see some way of seeing it as very consonant with that tradition? Um, what about the very attempt to design something that is meant to be autonomous from the designer? Can inquiries into theodicy, into, for instance, uh, resolving the uh, problem of evil, from the traditional problem, problem of evil, can that be of assistance in designing AI systems? Or vice versa, could insights from designing AI systems um, be of any use in resolving old problems in the early theodicy? And another issue I might not get to is what I call the external naturalization of spirituality, which I'll explain that term later on. Um, but you might consider such questions as, Will robots or artificial intelligences eventually um, have to or have a predisposition to um, believe in God? There are some arguments um, that my colleagues have put forward that suggest that that might be the case. But I'll only discuss these issues at the end, if time permits. And instead, I will focus on, or at first, I will focus on uh, the topic as given in the title of uh, my lecture, that is, I'll focus on this question of naturalizing the spiritual and how insights, there might be insights from cognitive science toward that end. So it's good to start with defining terms uh, just to let you know at least how I'm using these various terms in the title and the question that if uh, the issue I've put before myself, uh, 
cognitive science, I have a, well, as a director of a cognitive science uh, research center, I should have a view on this, and I do have a view, but uh, perhaps it's much broader than uh, what others, uh, how others see the field of cognitive science. I just think that cognitive science is any scientifically based attempt to understand how the mind can be part of the natural world, um, how it's possible for mental states to be part of the natural world. And so the question I'm posing is, can we use the same techniques that have been used in cognitive science to make sense of how the mental can be part of the natural physical world? Can we use those same techniques to investigate whether or not the spiritual can be understood to be part of the natural physical world? So I say that cognitive science attempts to naturalize the mind. What do I mean by that? Well, well, why might one think that one has to do something called naturalizing the mind? Why is there an issue about seeing the mind as part of the natural world? Well, it seems that mental states and processes are very different from physical states and processes. For example, thoughts, which are a typical uh, entity referred to in any psychology or any mental um, view of the, of the world, thoughts can be true or false, whereas things like atoms and rocks cannot be true or false. This alone, this idea of something that can be true or false, something to which norms uh, essentially apply, is enough to distinguish a, mental, a, wet, a psychological view of the world or a mental view of the world from a naturalistic physical one. Another way of putting the, the question or the problem is how can it be that a physical thing can also be a thing with a mental life? Or looked at the other way, why is it that my physical body behaves in a way which matches up with my, say, intentions. Um, Adrian Cousins made this vividly clear in his miraculous coincidence thought experiment in which um, I don't necessarily recommend uh, uh, doing this before you're about to make a long drive, but in this thought experiment, he uh, asked you to imagine or consider how when driving a car, the physical aspects of your body, the neurons firing, uh, muscles contracting, uh, your eyes moving here and there, just happen to do the right things that correspond with a rational understanding of what one wants to do when one is driving, keeping the car on the road, not, not colliding with other cars, etc. Um, it makes your, your, your actions of steering and um, avoiding obstacles, etc. make sense from a a psychological point of view involving goals, intentions, desires, fears, hopes, anticipations, thoughts, beliefs, etc. Um, but, but that story coincides with uh, the, a purely behavioral story that could be given about your body in terms of neurons firing, in terms of uh, action potentials, in terms of um, uh, computations your body's performing, muscles contracting, etc. And what we don't know um, when we do not have a naturalization of the mind is why it is that those stories stay in sync. Why is it that my, bo my body just happens to do the right physical things that make sense also from a rational um, mental perspective. A little bit more about what I mean by naturalization. I just mean make it in making it intelligible how two different or mul multiply different uh, views of the world um, can both be about the same world, how can the mental view of the world be the very, how can the, the world as revealed through a mental understanding of it be the same world as revealed through a physical understanding of it? And how can each of those uh, views be correct in some sense? That is, give a proper understanding, give an understanding of that same world. So why is it that uh, both the neurophysiological characterization of me works and the psychological characterization of me works. Um, if we leave it as just a coincidence, as just, well, they both happen to be true, but we don't know why they're both true, then I think we're missing a deep understanding of, um, of, of reality, of, of the, our, our true reality. When one naturalizes two or more different perspectives on the world, one need not give any particular perspective on the world special authority. However, several attempts to naturalize, uh, several approaches to naturalizing, uh, say, the mental, 
um, do give pride of place to one particular view, usually the lowest level physics available at the time. Um, but I'm going to try to consider, in addition to those uh, approaches, approaches that do not assume any particular special authority of one um, perspective in advance. And um, this understanding of what naturalization amounts to is again from the author Adrian Cousins, although a different paper than I cited before. I mentioned before a distinction between, I mentioned the term external naturalization. Um, I'd like to make a distinction between external and internal naturalization, just so that I can distinguish the project I'm concerned with this evening from very similar related projects that others uh, even here at this university are concerned with that I won't be talking about tonight. So by external naturalization of spirituality, I mean an investigation into questions such as why do people have spiritual beliefs at all? And why is this, does this seem to be a near universal feature of humanity? How could this feature have evolved? And these explanations are typically not in terms of those beliefs being true, but some other facts about those beliefs. Maybe they, those beliefs or views have some adaptive value. So, for instance, work here at Yale, I, I found out, um, well, there's, there's James's work uh, in spiritual archaeology that um, falls uh, into this general area, um, at least as far as I understand it. And then I only recently came to find out that there's other work being done in the psychology department here by Paul Bloom on the cognitive science of religion, and I haven't investigated that very thoroughly, but from a superficial survey, it does also look like it's a kind of what I'm calling external naturalization of spirituality, looking into what causes people to have um, spiritual beliefs or a spiritual viewpoint on the world. Again, it's neutral or perhaps negative um, with respect to the truth of the, those views or those beliefs. So I'm distinguishing that approach, which is uh, perfectly valid and fruitful, um, useful inquiry, from the particular issue and investigation I'm concerned with this evening, which is internal naturalization of spirituality. So instead of looking at or only at the causes of our spiritual views or how the, such views might have, uh, such capacities to have such views might have evolved. Instead, I'm looking at the views themselves and seeing if the claims that those views make on the world can be reconciled with other views that we have about the world, in particular, our scientific, physical-based views, natural scientific views. Now, I'll just say one thing about what's at stake here. What happens if naturalization cannot be achieved? What happens when internal naturalization of the kind that I'm concerned with here isn't possible? Well, it looks like you have two options, perhaps. Either what's eliminate the, um, say, more exotic of the two perspectives that can't be reconciled with each other. Um, on what grounds one makes the decision which is more exotic than the other, or which is going to be eliminated in the face of an incompatibility, that's, um, that's a discussion I won't have tonight. But that, that tends to be a, um, uh, that's a popular um, option for some people. If uh, an exotic level of discourse cannot be reconciled with a more familiar form of discourse, then um, the exotic is eliminated. Another option is some kind of uh, acceptance of the lack of unification or lack of naturalization, yielding perhaps a kind of relativism, say for certain forms of postmodernist thought, or a form of quietism, saying that uh, this is a question that shouldn't be asked, it's a mistake to look for such a unification, or a celebration of the paradox or of the uh, incompatibilities of one's different views. Um, so those are the options that one's, one is reduced to if one hasn't achieve naturalization, and maybe some uh, find those options uh, salutary, but those are the options that are trying to be resisted. We're trying to look for something that prevents, uh, that doesn't force us into eliminating one of these valuable, if it's valuable, forms of discourse, nor just um, ignoring the discrepancies and um, 
to coincidences that cry out for explanation. Another term that you might think I should make clear um, is what I mean by the spiritual, uh, but I actually won't go into that much here. Um, in particular, I'm sure there's more expertise in front of me concerning different notions of spiritual that are on offer um, than I have, and I would in fact be one of the, I should stress that um, this lecture is offered in humility in the sense that I uh, am not, I'm, I'm someone who's familiar with cognitive science and artificial intelligence going out on a limb into an area that, although I have amateur interest, uh, is not my area of professional expertise. So I'm very, uh, in a, with humility, I'm uh, asking for assistance and asking for correction if it seems that um, I'm ignoring certain important distinctions, not aware of Im important work that would impact on the claims that I make, and in particular, this issue of notions of spirituality that um, might make a difference to the discussion I'm having tonight. But I think that the kinds of issues I'm looking at here can still apply no matter what notion of spirituality um, you prefer or um, wish to put forward. If I'm wrong about that, I, I hope you'll correct me. The only constraint, um, the only extra thing I might say about the notion of spirituality in play here is just something about what it's not. I'm not insisting that the spiritual must necessarily be supernatural. It could be, but to insist that it must be would beg the question that I'd like to consider tonight, which is whether or not the spiritual can be unified with the natural. And um, making that impossible by definition, um, well, that might be the only way forward, but um, it would mean I'd just have to, I'd have to stop now and we'd have to just um, talk about something else. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that there is a notion of the spiritual that doesn't make um, the spiritual necessarily, from the outset, supernatural. The way that I'd like to structure this examination of the way that uh, cognitive science might inform an, an attempt at naturalizing the spiritual is to go over the methods of naturalization that have been identified by philosophers of science in general, but in particular by the, in discussions concerning how the mental might be naturalized. So I'll just list them here on this slide, but I'll go into each of them in detail in the subsequent slides. So there's um, an approach that is goes back at least as far as Descartes. Maybe it's the uh, intuitive view of how um, the, the mental and the physical can, can be both ways of looking at the same world, and that is a dualistic view that has the mental and the physical interacting. Another view is to reduce one level of discourse to another level of discourse. For example, in cognitive science, reducing the mental to the physical. Another approach is to merely state that the mental say, if you're concerned with cognitive science, the mental supervenes on the physical, and I'll explain what that means later. There's also the view that the mental is just an interpretive stance that one takes towards the physical. Then there's a possibly new um, or novel um, method of naturalization, uh, possibly novel to you. Um, it's not quite as, um, it's not as well known as these other options. But it's the idea that um, one naturalizes, makes uh, a naturalization relation between two levels of discourse by somehow constructing uh, a link between them that makes um, their coexistence intelligible, mutually intelligible. Uh, that might not be itself intelligible right now, but I hope it will be after I get to that slide. And finally, I'll look at a, a possibility of conceptual change, which isn't really itself a method of naturalization more um, an auxiliary possibility that might make these, the previous five methods more successful um, than, they, than they might seem in prospect. So I'll look at um, each of these in turn now. Oh, actually, first I'll explain what, uh, what are the things that are being naturalized. I've already been talking about uh, implicitly 
referring to um, the things that are to be naturalized and taking a stance on that, but just to make it more explicit, the things that are to be naturalized are two or more ways of understanding the world. Um, and one can consider two at a time, although um, the general case is multiple different ways of understanding the world. But I think um, all the issues we need to deal with tonight can, will arise just when we consider two at a time. And I've been referring to these as discourse, mental discourse, physical discourse, naturalizing one discourse with another. But that shouldn't imply that these ways of understanding the world need be linguistically expressed or even expressible. I should note that some means of naturalization are asymmetric in that they do presuppose that one level of discourse has some kind of priority. Um, it's deemed privileged or familiar. It's the one that's not going to be rejected if naturalization cannot be achieved. Whereas another, so other discourses or the other discourse is classed as unfamiliar or exotic. It's the one that's causing the problem, supposedly. Um, so some means of naturalization have that asymmetry. But again, as I said before, not all. So the idea with these asymmetric uh, modes of naturalization is that you're naturalizing the exotic to the familiar, not the other way around. So it's a one-way relation rather than uh, um, two-way relation. Okay. To look at the first of these modes, of poss possible modes of naturalization, and what I'll do is I'll often use the mental to the physical as my example, but hopefully try to evaluate that mode of uh, naturalization with respect to the spiritual as well along the way, um, although only superficially. Dualism, interactive dualism is, uh, I'm thinking of the classic Cartesian view of a of a mental substance and a physical substance that interact causally. Um, and this is a symmetric uh, re uh, naturalization method because the uh, mental and the physical are peers in some sense. Uh, there's no priority of one over the other. Although there might be an epistemic priority, there's no metaphysical priority of one over the other. The problem is that the states and processes of P and Q are of, are complete, of a different kind. They're completely incommensurable. However, they do have some kind of non-explanatory, usually causal relation between them. So there's nothing about the mental that explains the physical, but the mental does cause the physical, and vice versa. There's nothing about the physical that explains the mental, and the causal connections between them are left to be quite arbitrary. But the causal connections do um, uh, account for, in some superficial sense, the parallels we find between the mental and the physical worlds. So examples of causation between the mental and physical would be from the physical to the mental would be perception, and from the mental to the physical would be action. There are many famous problems of the, uh, for the uh, Cartesian view, this view I'm calling interactive dualism. I'm hoping to generalize it here from the case of the mental and physical, though, to any two discourses that are related in this way. Um, for instance, if one of these levels of discourse is causally closed, and by that I mean if, there, if it is um, sufficient in itself, if, if one can give within that discourse alone a causal explanation of all the events that occur in that discourse, then it seems that there's no room for the other discourse to step in and have any causal say in that uh, level of discourse. So to move away from the abstracts, P's and Q's and levels of discourse, I'll say, for instance, uh, most philosophers, perhaps even physicists, believe that physics is causally closed, that there aren't any gaps in physics. Um, uh, Pace uh, questions about the collapse of the wave function. Um, there aren't any gaps in physics um, that would leave room for mental causation. Every physical event has an, a purely physical set of sufficient causes, and therefore there's no room for mental intervention if the mental is a separate substance from the physical. And uh, if that's the case, then uh, interactive dualism becomes unattractive if one wants to have 
one wants to make sense of the mind being causal. One common retreat from that is to see the mental, say, or the, the level of discourse that um, has been shut out of the other level of discourse causally, uh, to see it as an epiphenomenon, epiphenomenon. Um, to just see it as something that can be caused by the mental, for instance, can be caused by the physical, but can have no causal effect on the physical, um, as is forced by the causal closure of the physical. But this really uh, is not satisfactory, because um, that uh, not only violates our intuition that, the, that, our men, mo- that our mental events do have an effect on the world, that it's because we will our hand to, to rise up, that the hand rises up, but also, it's, uh, or more radically, it prevents any knowledge at all of the mental. So if, you're, if, nothing, if, you're, if your mental states cannot cause anything, then in particular, they can't cause your reports of your mental states. So um, any reports that you make about your own mental state, um, we have no reason to believe that they actually do report your mental states because they're not caused by them. So these problems... I think this would be an unattractive naturalization strategy for spiritual discourse as well, for the same reasons. If you see the spiritual as a separate realm, uh, even if you allow causal interaction between it and the natural uh, and the entities of natural dis- science discourse, then you're going to have the same problems that uh, the mental um, mental discourse has had, um, and therefore I, it, can, it cannot be re- recommended as a as a naturalization strategy for the spiritual. And I don't really, I don't think um, much more needs to be said there. It's only really going over this as an example of uh, all the different strategies that have been considered by, say, cognitive science and rejected. Reduction is probably the most uh, uh, famous or popular or most obvious uh, strategy for um, trying to naturalize one level of discourse in terms of another. It's an asymmetric relation. You reduce the exotic to the familiar, say, um, and in doing so, you do not reduce the familiar to the exotic. What it means is, what it amounts to is defining each of the concepts in the exotic level of discourse in terms of some perhaps complex but finitely long uh, expression of concepts in the familiar, the reducing discourse. For instance, the classic textbook example that's given usually is uh, the temperature of a substance is defined as the mean kinetic energy of its molecules. So you go from something that is uh, a discourse that is on the, on the level higher than, say, the... Uh, I, yeah, sorry about that. It's kinetic. Um, you go from a discourse uh, that's on a higher level than the physical... Uh, a higher level than physical discourse. For instance, you might be talking chemistry, um, and then you can reduce uh, temperature in that discourse to a physical account in terms of mean kinetic energy of molecules. That model um, isn't appropriate for, although very appropriate for certain kinds of um, discourse, uh, relating to certain discourses, it isn't a useful notion, the notion of reduction isn't useful for, uh, in particular, the cognitive sciences. Um, There are many problems when one tries to apply apply it to, say, the mental. Um, For example, um, it's hard to find these supposed reductions. Temperature, uh, the reduction of temperature to mean kinetic energy uh, is one example, but when you try to find these examples in, say, psychology, um, it's, they can be uh, difficult to produce, and there's a reason for that. The mind, as we conceive it, seems to be something that is multiply realizable. That is, if it turns out that um, my uh, brain happens to be made out of slightly different stuff than your brain, we wouldn't say, I therefore don't have any beliefs, desires, um, intentions, goals, or whatever. We would say, oh, well, then there can be different... Um, chemical ways of realizing the same psychological states. And if I was made out of silicon or something else, again, it seems appropriate, or it seems that we would, wouldn't deny my uh, intentionality, my mentality. Instead, we would take that as ipso facto evidence that 
the mental can be realized in many ways. The mind seems to be, at least to some people, a functional concept which can be realized physically in an indefinite number of ways. If that's so, then there's not going to be, there are going to be no finite uh, definitions of the form that I uh, gave at the top of the slide. No definitions of, of that form are going to be available. There would have to be infinite disjunctions of all the different possible realizations, all the different possible physical manifestations of that functional type. So um, that's why reduction isn't a popular option in, I would say, philosophically informed cognitive science. Of course, there are people who proceed, and um, in particular, there's a, a trend towards a kind of neural reductionism, but I think um, what neural reductionists are talking about is something different. They're only talking about a local reduction. They're not saying this is what, what it is to believe that P, this is just how people, this is a physical state that manifests a person's believing that P. But that isn't the kind of understanding we want to have. We want to understand how mental states in general relate to the physical. And um, although a neural reduction would certainly be part of a story that would make the physical and the mental intelligible, it is only part of it and isn't the full, full solution, I think. Um, another problem is that if you do succeed in coming up with such a definition, it looks like eliminativism, the elimination of the exotic, threatens again. It's a case of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you can't naturalize the mental to the physical, then people say, well, then throw it out because it doesn't fit in with our physical worldview. And then if you can naturalize it to the physical, say, by providing a reduction and defining a mental state in terms of physical states, and they say, well, throw it out because now we know what the mental states are. We can just use the physical description. So there is this danger of, of reductive elimination that uh, if you could find a nice compact definition of the of the mental in terms of the physical, it would suggest that it's, we're not, our, men, our, for instance, our actions are not the results of our mental deliberations as much as they are the result of these physical states, which are the, um, the reductions of our uh, supposed mental deliberations. So there would be no causal left for the exotic, in this case, the mental, as the mental, qua mental, to do. And this would be the same if we tried a reductive approach to uh, spiritual discourse. We would have the same problems of, I believe, the multiple realizability. I think just as uh, uh, the mental is multiple realizable, uh, multiply realizable, so also is the spiritual. And therefore, uh, it's going to be unlikely to find reductions. And even if you could find reductions, that would threaten a kind of elimination. Another strategy is to merely posit that the exotic supervenes on the familiar. And I won't go into this in detail, just to point out that it's, it's an attempt to move away from the limitations uh, that, of reductionism that uh, result from reductionism being a very strong claim, insisting on a tight definition that relates the two levels of discourse. This relation only requires um, that there be some relation between the exotic and the familiar, in that if you fix the familiar, you thereby fix the exotic. That is, any change in the exotic would imply a change in the familiar. And I won't go into the details, but this does avoid at least some of the problems of reductionism. Um, but it seems to be too weak. You've lost the power of reductionism. You've lost the advantage uh, that reductionism provided of at least making sense how these two different levels of discourse relate. Now it's left open vague and unclear how the two levels relate other than that one fixes the other. But, for instance, we can't explain why it is that um, our thoughts cause our actions or cause our behavior. Um, I can't really go into that too much more. I realize time's rushing on. So, um, But the point is that if it's weak for the mental, relating the mental to the physical, so also will it be for relating the spiritual to the physical. Um, we won't have any, even if we agreed that two physically identical situations must also be spiritually identical. Um, that is not saying much, and it would still leave um, many questions about the relationship between these two levels of discourse and how they can both be true ways of looking at the world. The strategy uh, of interpretation is yet another asymmetric way of trying to naturalize the exotic in terms of the familiar. Uh, I have that backwards. 
Well, yes, you're trying to naturalize the exotic in terms of the familiar, but the way you do that is you interpret the familiar um, in such a way that the, uh, the discourse of the exotic is supported. I'll make this more clear. I have in mind here Dan Dennett's intentional stance in the case where the exotic is the mental. Um, he uh, defines the intentional stance to be something like this. A system, S, has uh, mental states, I should say, beliefs and desires, that's what the B and the D stand for, has these mental states, these beliefs B and these desires D, if the non-mentally construed behavior of S, that's just physically, physically construing S as a, as, a, as a behaving physical system, if the non-mentally construed behavior of S can be explained by two things. You ascribe to S the beliefs and desires that S should have given how it's interacted with the world. So S is some physical system and you see that S has eyes and you see that the eyes are pointed uh, towards the chair. So you should ascribe to S the belief that there's a chair in front of it. And same for desires. You have a common sense uh, attribution of desires to the system given that you know it hasn't, S hasn't eaten for a long time and it has the same physiology as you, that S is probably hungry. Um, uh, those are examples of ascribing beliefs and desires to a system based on uh, the beliefs and desires it should have. Then you assume that S will behave in a way that would achieve its desires if its beliefs were true. Now, I didn't give a good example. I mentioned desires to eat and beliefs about chairs being in the room. But uh, the point is that once you ascribe a lot of beliefs and desires, then you can just assume S is rational, assume S is a rational subject assume that it tries to achieve its desires in light of what, in light of what it believes its actions will achieve. And um, if, if by doing, make, taking those two steps, you can reliably explain and predict what S is going to do, then S is a mental system. S has mental states. It has, in particular, it has the mental states that you found so useful in predicting its behavior. So this is an interpretationist, um, and, and you could call it a, an anti-realist uh, view of what the mind is. It's just a system has just the mental states that allow you to make sense of its behavior and no more, no less. So it's a, it's a fact that not all systems will be explicable in this way. Attributing beliefs and desires to a table, uh, say, doesn't really help you uh, explain its behavior any better than you could have done just by understanding it as a purely physical system. Contrast that with humans and animals by attributing beliefs and desires to them. Uh, you can make an appointment uh, with someone in, in New Haven, even if you're in England, uh, months and months beforehand, thousands of miles away, and you can be pretty sure that they'll be at the train station. Um, and uh, that was all on the basis of taking an intentional stance towards them, treating them as a rational agent. You didn't know, need to know anything about their neurophysiology. All you needed to do is just assume that they're going to behave um, as a rational agent would and that they have the beliefs and desires you expect that they have. And we, by and large, are explicable in those terms, so therefore we have the mental states. Uh, there are problems with this approach, of course. In one sense, it merely restates what we want to explain. It's just a very precise way of stating the interaction, the, the covariance between um, the mental description of the world and the physical description of the world. What we want to explain is what, what is it about us that allows us to be so interpretable? And this uh, approach to naturalization must remain silent on that. And in, uh, further, it doesn't explain the source of the interpretation. Who's doing this interpretation and how did they get to be an interpreter in the first place? If what it is to be a mental thing is to be interpretable by some interpreter, um, it seems like mentality is always relative to somebody doing some kind of interpretation. It seems that there isn't a fact of the matter of whether any system has mental states. It's just um, left open to uh, the existence of interpreter, an interpreter or, diff or worse, different interpreters. That is, two interpreters might come up with different ways of understanding my behavior, different postulation of beliefs and desires that make equal sense of my behavior. Which beliefs and desires do I therefore have? Maybe some uh, types of inquiry can embrace that kind of non-determinism or relativism, but to us it seems like there is a fact of the matter about what our beliefs and desires are. It's not just a matter of 
what someone might be able to or not be able to interpret me as having. So that seems unsatisfying to a lot of people, a lot of people of a more realist bent. So it seems that we, this would also be the case if one tried to take the same strategy towards spiritual discourse. If one said, well, um, spiritual phenomena, spiritual properties, uh, events, entities exist just if those concepts allow you to make sense of uh, the world in a, in a reliable, voluminous, and predictive way. One could try to take the spiritual stance, but nobody has, uh, it's not clear how one could uh, do that in a way that closely models Dennett's intentional stance. I gave you a rather compact but rather precise statement of what it is to take the intentional stance. Um, what would that equivalent uh, specification be for the spiritual stance? Well, I, I don't, um, I don't uh, know what that would be. And here's perhaps one place where a lack of a definite notion of what the spiritual is is hurting us. Um, but uh, it, it just seems like the problems of the interpretationist approach uh, that, I, that I mentioned concerning relativity and non-determinism are also going to be a problem here. But it would be ironic if one could come up with the spiritual stance and use it as a means of naturalizing the spiritual, given um, that Dennett, who is the author of the intentional stance, um, is a strong uh, anti-theist, or atheist, I guess. The last general strategy for naturalization I'd like to consider is what I call intelligibility construction. It's similar to the interpretationist approach, but a key difference is that it isn't asymmetric like the interpretationist approach was. The idea here is that one only wants to make, uh, one wants to construct some intelligible relation between two discourses, and one isn't going to presuppose one as exotic or familiar. Um, rather, one has achieved naturalization between two discourses when one has some practical capacity, not an inferential capacity as we saw in the interpretationist stance. Uh, that, that the interpretationist stance was the ability to uh, predict or infer what the system was going to do based on your postulation of psychological properties of a certain kind. Um, and not a logical relationship as in reduction. The mental and the physical were related as a logical definition. Uh, um, but here, the way that the relation is achieved, the intelligibility making is achieved, is that the person doing the naturalization, the theorist doing the, the naturalization, has some practical capacity to relate the two domains in action, in their action. So one can act in terms, one can achieve one's goals according uh, within the P discourse in a way or, or one, sorry, one can act in terms of the P discourse in a way that's appropriate to the goals that one has in the other discourse. So if one knows how to intervene with respect to one set of terms and expressions in a way that achieves some ends with respect to the other um, concepts ter and terms in the other discourse, then one has that practical capacity. Cousins, who introduced this notion, at least to me, um, uses an example of an architect. An architect has this practical capacity that I'm talking about with respect to two ways of looking at a building. There's the blueprint technology, the blueprint view, that way of understanding an architectural construction, and there's the everyday world of building materials, um, um, actual uh, physical placings of building materials, uh, purchasing them, uh, organizing them, um, that practical capacity as well. So what we have here are two ways of understanding how, um, understanding a building, uh, and an architect has the capacity to understand how a mark on this blueprint, what implications it will have for, cons for material use and uh, features such as having a southern exposure, and vice versa. The architect knows how to, um, how to intervene in the world so as to realize a, a blueprint um, specification of a building. That's meant to be a metaphor uh, that explains the general uh, notion here where 
uh, one will have understood <coughs> the relation of, say, the mental to the physical if uh, one is no, long, no longer finds it baffling how an intervention on one, and one level of discourse has, has the particular implications it does for another level of discourse, say, the physical from the mental. So, possessing this practical capacity need not be monolithic. It could be the result of having a set of practical capacities, a set of practical capacities to negotiate a number of discourses that stretch between the ultimate physical discourse and mental discourse. So, it's not proposed necessarily that one achieves this, acquires this ability in one step. It could very well be that there will be a number of discourses intermediate between the highest level natural scientific discourse, as you might phrase it, and the lowest level mental discourse that needs to be naturalized. But together these discourses and the ability to negotiate them in a pairwise fashion would constitute an overall practical capacity to negotiate between the mental and physical. If one possessed this capacity, or these sets of capacities, then it would no longer be a, a mystery why something with these physical properties is also something with these mental properties and vice versa. And the proposal that uh, Adrian Cousins put forward is that the best candidate from cognitive science for what these intermediate levels of discourse are is that they're uh, computational, at least in part, maybe computational robotic, computational robotic and perceptual, computational robotic, perceptual, embodied, situated uh, discourses but um, the computational element being important there. So the picture looks something like this, a mental description of a system, a physical, descri physical description of a system, um, and a question mark as to how the two relate. Um, naturalization attempts to answer that, and in this uh, uh, cartoon of the relation, there's only one computational intermediating intermediary computational description or computational discourse that allows an intelligible relation to be constructed between the physical and the computational. We know what it would be. Uh, there, there are people, computer scientists, engineers, who can understand if you want to build a system that has this computational property, then you, do, you manipulate the physical system this way. And there can also be people who say, well, um, if a state is going to have uh, be this kind of mental state, a belief of this sort or a perception of this sort, then it better have these computational properties and they can uh, understand why those two relate. And together, that will constitute an intelligible connection between the mental and the physical, and the mind will have been naturalized. So an analogy can be made with um, chess computers, but um, for the sake of... Um, uh, keeping this uh, lecture from going too long, I think I'll just uh, move through, through this quite quickly. Uh, the idea is just that uh, certain uh, computers now, in particular a chess computer, can be understood as having uh, beliefs, desires, and goals. For instance, um, that's very useful in playing against a chess computer that you think of it as trying to play chess and having certain beliefs and goals and desires. But you can also understand chess computers in terms of them being made out of certain circuits. And um, we don't find that there to be a, a mind-body problem there. Uh, there isn't a mystery as, as to how it can be interpretable in that way and also be understood as a physical system. Well, the reason why is because we have the intervening representational and computational level. And those computational properties, importantly, are not reducible to any physical ones. The computational properties, again, are multiply realizable, like mental um, states seem to be multiply realizable. So we have a case of a naturalistic explanation. We've naturalized this pseudo-mental description of a chess computer without reducing those pseudo-mental states to any physical states. So that's the proposal that, that cognitive science is putting forward for uh, understanding the mind, not just of chess computers, but real mental states of real um, mental agents. What goes for the chess computer goes for us. We can naturalize our mental states without reducing them to physical states. And I've already explained how cognitive science aims to do that. Could this be done for the spiritual? 
Well, suppose that spiritual events, properties, entities, etc., cannot be reduced to physics. Suppose, does that imply that one has to abandon or eliminate the spiritual? So here's one of the main points of the lecture, is that often in discussions about relating the, the spiritual to the physical or the supposed conflict between those two ways of looking at the world, I think an assumption is often made that uh, if one cannot reduce the spiritual to the physical, then one must eliminate or eliminate the spiritual or give up on a naturalistic worldview. And I'm saying um, that the results from cognitive science concerning the mental apply directly here, and no, we do not, um, uh, do not have to assume that the spiritual needs to be eliminated just because reduction isn't on offer. Um, we've seen other models of, uh, of naturalization that can make sense of the world being one world without requiring an asymmetry, a privileged point of view um, to which everything else must be reduced in the technical sense. The success of this intelligibility construction approach depended upon finding some intermediate level, in the case of the mental, the computational level, that could allow one to have a stepwise practical capacity of negotiating these different levels. But what could this be for the case of the spiritual, of spiritual discourse? Well, I don't know. But it could be that it is a new kind of discourse or a new kind of conceptual scheme that is as yet undiscovered. But perhaps the computational level can um, be used again. Now, that might sound very odd. It's all very well, perhaps, to think of cognition or mentality as computational, but spirituality, computational spirituality, how could that make any sense? Well, the thing to note here is that the notion of computation that's in play in performing this naturalization in the case of cognitive science is really a very abstract notion of computation indeed. It just means a functional characterization, an abstract characterization of the physical that's multiple realize, multiply realizable. Um, that has some semantic properties, that has some uh, norms that apply to it. And it doesn't mean number crunching or clunking robots or um, uh, calculating um, complex trajectories. It's a, a term of art that just means an abstract enough physical characterization that captures the relations you're interested in, namely relations between um, abstract functional entities and uh, does so with respect to, with, um, in a way such that you can speak of it, uh, processes being correct or incorrect. And that's enough, really, to um, bridge the physical and the mental. And that notion of computation need not be so um, odd as a proposal for an intermediate, le intermediate level between the spiritual and the physical. So the picture would be um, very similar, all the same. Um, and this question mark could be, I'm proposing a kind of computational level as uh, with the caveat um, just provided that I mean that in a very generic sense, um, or it might be something else. But I mentioned that there's a, an additional um, technique one might use to make naturalization more tenable. So far, I've been assuming that the discourses to be related are fixed in advance, and then one must find some way of relating the two. Um, but why not allow that there can be a change in the discourses? If you can't relate to discourses as they are, perhaps they can be modified to be made to, to fit with each other better without changing the topic. Now, that's important because, of course, if you just stop talking about the spiritual and start talking about the abstract physical, that's going to be very easy to relate it to the physical. Um, so there's got, what I'm suggesting here is that we can change our concepts within a domain while still talking about the entities that we were talking about before in that domain. So the idea is here is to have come up with concepts or terms that have the same reference but have different sense, a sense that might allow a better fit with other levels of discourse. This might be a way that one can remove some conceptual obstacles to naturalization. In particular, in the case of uh, the mind, um, there are lots of uh, puzzles and, and uh, paradoxes that people, say, in the area of consciousness studies, 
um, bring up and put forward as uh, obstacles as to any physical understanding of consciousness. For instance, any way of understanding how uh, the, the, a physical system could be conscious and a conscious system could be physically realized. They take, for example, the apparent possibility of zombies, creatures that are that behave just like us, but by, by stipulation have no phenomenal consciousness. They take the apparent possibility of these creatures to show that there could never be a physical explanation of consciousness. That is, I think they're, they're thinking of a physical reduction of consciousness. But uh, I think it might also be dangerous for even an intelligibility construction of consciousness. If the zombies are possible, then um, it looks like naturalization of any sort is off the cards. But um, what I'm proposing here is that maybe if we change our concept of consciousness so that we're not changing the, the subject, but it has the new concept has different uh, implications for what we consider possible and impossible, then we might get to a point where that, what we previously considered to be possible, these zombies, um, is now seen to be an illusion. We were misled with the new concept of consciousness we might see that uh, zombies, we, we might no longer recognize zombies as a possibility. That is, creatures that are physically identical with us and yet not phenomenally identical with us. So perhaps this is something to keep in mind when attempting to naturalize the spiritual. Insisting that the new successor concepts don't change the topic. They're still about the same things, the same entities, that we were uh, thinking about before with our previous predecessor uh, spiritual concepts, but the new concepts are, have been chosen in such a way that they allow, that they facilitate naturalization of one form or the other. And um, if it wasn't clear before, I should say I was putting forward the intelligibility construction as the reductive means of choice. So what kind of changes might one make to one's concept of the spiritual? One, uh, uh, one candidate that might spring to mind immediately would be things like the infinite nature of certain uh, spiritual schemes. So many spiritual schemes have notion of a God that is infinite. Um, is that something that's going to have to go if we want to naturalize the spiritual? Are we going to have to modify our concept of God to be a finite being for instance, if that's uh, part of our spiritual scheme, in order to uh, naturalize the spiritual? Well, I'm not so sure. Um, there are infinite idealizations in many discourses that we don't consider to be non-naturalistic. So, for instance, to bring up a computational example again, the Turing machine is an idealized uh, computational device that's been very useful in developing uh, the, the technology we have now. It was a notion invented in the 50s or maybe even before, and uh, it involves uh, the uh, it, it in involves the uh, a very simple kind of processor moving along an infinite tape uh, tape of that allows it to make marks and read marks that basically constitute its memory and also constitutes its input and output. Without that infinite tape, all of the findings of computational theory would not hold true. Uh, well, most of them wouldn't hold true. It's, and that, what I'm trying to say is that the fact that the tape is uh, infinite is important to being able to prove the theorems we've been, we've been proving, that, um, the computational foundations for our technology that we have. Um, so he, no one, um, although people are aware of this, uh, this um, fly in the ointment and are somehow, sometimes bothered by the fact that their idealizations have an infinitistic aspect, no one really proposes that this means that Turing machine, that the, the Turing machine perspective on the world is a supernatural view of the world. It's just seen as an infinite idealization. So maybe um, infinite aspects of the spiritual can be accommodated in a similar way. But even if that one can be retained, even if an infinite uh, spiritual being can be maintained, um, there might be other changes that would help uh, in naturalizing the spiritual. And um, this might be a case where a lack of precision concerning the spiritual is an advantage. If we don't already have uh, very fixed views about what the concept of the spiritual must be, then it might be the kind of play that we need in order to make this uh, 
a naturalization move, whereas there are other domains where the, the concepts have been very uh, rigidified and doing this kind of conceptual change in order to better integrate is nearly impossible. So I'm trying to turn uh, a bug into a feature there. And finally, if one can naturalize the spiritual, then a question that immediately uh, presents itself is, could there be a science of this uh, of spirituality once so naturalized? Now, I'm not asking about an external science of spirituality in the sense that could we have a scientific account of why people have evolved spiritual views, etc. Remember, that's the external naturalization that I'm not considering, but rather an internal science of spirituality. Could there be a science that tests the hypotheses about the relations between spiritual events, the kind of generalizations we might have about how the spiritual world works? Could there be a science that provides explanations or even predictive theories about, um, captures our, uh, makes more precise our intuitive generalizations concerning the spiritual? Well, this is getting far beyond um, what I can uh, comment on here. Um, but one might think that only if such a thing make, can, be, can be made sense of, only if that occurs can one really be said to have achieved naturalization. Until that occurs, um, maybe that no, uh, no integration between the spiritual view, the spiritual discourse, and natural science discourse can be made. Um, and it might be that just as a science of the mind requires a familiarity with experience, a, a truth that I don't think many um, cognitive scientists or philosophers of cognitive science recognize, they seem to think that one can do a science of the mind without ever having, any, any, ever having had experience. Just as a science of the mind requires familiarity with its subject matter, so also a science of the spiritual might require familiarity with its, that is, the spiritual itself. So I've gone on for, um, I didn't actually pay attention to when I came to the podium, um, but I've, I believe I've gone on for at least an hour, if not longer. So um, I have, have a few slides uh, about uh, the items that I mentioned at the very beginning, but I think what I'll do is um, uh, skip those and uh, see if you have any questions about what's gone before and, um, and, and only talk about those other things if, if there's a convenient time. So I'll just uh, skip to, I'll sh this way you see what I was going to say, but um, see if I can jump to the last slide. Yep, I think that'd be easier. It actually might be easiest if I just skip to this slide. So um, I'm trying to get there. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. I just thought I'd put it that slide. <laughs> Thank you very much.